Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This is the Analyzing Anfield podcast on the Blood Red channel, bringing you the best tactical and statistical analysis of Liverpool FC. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of Analyze Nanfield, your tactics and analytics podcast, KDC of the Blood Red Channel. I'm Josh Williams and I'm joined by Mo Stewart. Mo, how are you feeling, mate? I'm good, I'm good. Uh, I've had quite an exciting week. I was uh, DJing at Turner Prize Awards last night, a little bit of a name drop there. Uh, <laughs> and yeah, and yeah I, I'm looking forward to what the rest of the week has to hold, particularly this. Well, it's funny, actually, you should mention music because one of our questions this week is related to music. I don't know if you've seen it yet. Yeah, um, I just got my eyes on it. And it's funny. It's a question that I answered on the Anfield Rap literally last week. So I feel like yeah. I'm quite comfortable with it. Yeah, well, um, for those who aren't aware, we are doing a, a Q&A this week. It was kind of a late decision, but there's not a lot going on in Liverpool at the moment. I should have probably flagged it last week, give people time to get questions in. But it was a 24 hours ago decision. <laughs> so we don't have <laughs> as many questions as usual. Hopefully we'll be able to get through them all. But we'll see. Um, and as usual, we're just going to take one question each and go from there, really. So I'll let Mo start. Mo, you can you know, pick whatever you want. Feel free, mate. Well, I feel like I probably should pick the music question first up. It's a little bit of an outlier. And we can just kind of get that out of the way and then do what we do best. So this very first question comes from Glenn Morton. And he says, if I could put on a gig at Anfield, which five artists would I have play? Now, obviously, normally it's just like a festival when you have this kind of question. But Anfield makes it very specific. So my first answer, opening up the show, is going to be Jamie Webster. For obvious reasons. I mean, how to get the crowd on side straight away, absolutely perfect. Get everyone singing along, brilliant. After them, I'm going to go for Queens of the Stone Age because they're one of my favourite bands. And also, I just think that the kind of light show that they'd put on would be fantastic. After that, it's going to be Soul Wax, who also know how to put on a really good light show. But it's also, if you think about it, They've got a wide variety of songs, so a little bit of dance for that kind of thing. After that, Outcast, simply because I've never seen them play. And no one's seen them play in like nearly 20 years. So that would be amazing. And finishing off, send you all home in an absolute great mood, Stevie Wonder. I mean, you can't lose. (laughs) That's quite the mixed bag. But that's the whole point, you see. If I'm going to do it, I'm going to do a little bit of something for everyone. But at the same time, at both ends, well, pretty much throughout, everyone's going to want to sing and dance. And that's what yeah. the whole point of the gig, isn't it? Yeah, well, that's the equivalent of James Milner, really, mate. That, I think that lineup just faces <laughs> versatility across the board, really. Well, I'll um, take that. Yeah, so I'll move on to my question then. So I've got a question from Harold MacDonald. Um, and he asks, this is something that we should have actually touched on a few weeks ago, but we didn't. What are your latest thoughts on Stevie as a manager? I'm assuming he means Stephen Gerrard. Uh, and how much has the weight has the Villa job waned his um, his chances of managing Liverpool? I did intend on talking about this, but we we, we didn't. I can't remember why. Something might have happened, but yeah, it's not great. Um, initially, the bit, first of all, I think the big thing with a manager. It, it's really difficult, I think, to assess the performance of, of a manager across the board in, in football because, f- for the most part, the game is played by the players. Mm-hmm. Um, managers have short bounces, um, don't have particularly long tenures, and it's kind of been proven by, by the likes of Ian Graham, actually, that they don't really have that much of an actual impact on performance, regardless of who's in charge. So I think the, the crucial thing is when it comes to a manager and you're and appointing one, you've got to really do what you can to pick out the managers that actually have an impact on team performance. And there's not 
that many. I I I don't think anyway. Pep Guardiola is an obvious one. Mm. Now, one of the reasons Pep's amazing is because although people always throw at him where he's got millions and millions of pounds to use, he's always got the best team and all that stuff. Despite that, in comparison to whoever's came before Pep and whoever's came after Pep, Pep seems to be worth an extra 10 points on his own for whatever reason. Um, he's a 95-point coach compared to a lot of coaches who tend to deliver 85 points with the same squad. So that's why Pep, for example, is an obvious outlier. Klopp is another one who has overperformed in comparison to his team level in throughout his career. Liverpool, Dortmund, Mainz. Yep. Um, so there's, there's lots of that. When Gerard first came on the scene, um, it, although he was in charge of Rangers, I thought he was doing a job which looked like he was performing above expectation. You know, I think he went a full season completely unbeaten. Um extremely difficult to play against. I think they did generally really well in Europe. I think they, they got good results against the likes of um Porto, I think maybe or Yeah Dortmund or Villarreal something. Yeah, Dortmund maybe. Um and it it looked like Gerard was having an impact on his team, like beyond expectation, which looked like he was a, an above average coach. Um or Mick Beal potentially was above average coach with Wow, I was gonna say Yeah, it needs to be seen. But um so we, we highlighted that a lot in Gerard's early tenure at, at Rangers. We, we highlighted that a lot on the show, and we were really excited about him. But since when he went to Villa, it was completely flatlined. You know, there was no difference at all from when he left to when he arrived midpoint. There was, it was just completely bang average coach impact, really. Um, whether he is a bang average coach, I don't know. But the fact is... Because he didn't have an impact on team performance after being after being there for a year, it just doesn't bode well for him being on Liverpool <coughs> shortlist. Because for me, to be on Liverpool shortlist, yeah. you have to be the kind of coach who just got exceeds expectation, if you know what I mean, with performances. Yeah. And Gerard didn't really do that at Villa Park. No, I mean, I feel for him in a lot of ways because he doesn't. He's going to have benefits from being Steven Gerrard's but there's definitely going to be some deficits of being Steven Gerrard. And if you think about it, he had, what, two seasons at Rangers and the best part of, a, what, half a season at Aston Villa. So he's basically three years into his managerial career. Let's look at Jurgen Klopp. Three years into his managerial career, he was still at Mainz and they were underperforming. So he needs time to build that kind of impact as a manager. Unfortunately, because he's Steven Gerrard, that time's not really going to be there because people are going to be anointing him with the Liverpool job from the very moment he takes his first step into management. The thing that I'm concerned about when I see him, and when you're a manager, there's only really a few ways that you can have an impact. You either have your style and you implement that style wherever you go and you work it to the point where you can make it successful with a range of players in terms of ability and uh, actual quality. Or you're a manager, you're a firefighter, you go in there, you motivate your team, you see who you've got, you work out what's the best way to get them to play, and then you get them to play. He hasn't really nailed the latter. He gave the former a good go at Rangers. And then you did see him try to bring in some of that style in terms of wing-back play, and those kind of things from Rangers to Villa, and it didn't translate. So you wonder whether or not he was just successful with that, because let's face it, Rangers, it's a tough job in terms of the pressure, but it is a very narrow job in terms of what you need to do. You need to beat them, those guys over there. That's it. <laughs> so when you consider the Premier League, where literally every single week is a battle, every single week is a team who believe they should be as good as you. It's a very different thing. In terms of managerial impact, I do think of some more people other than Pep. I think of um, Gasparini at Atalanta, Christian Strike at Freiburg, even Frank Hairs at Lons. But the thing about all of those is that they've been in situ for a very long time. They've been at that club for a while. They've built up that authority to be able to say, my ways work, and it's been proven time and time again. I really don't think, particularly headline managers, 
young managers are going to get that time anywhere. But he's not going to get that anywhere in England. If I was Steven Gerrard's agent, I'd be telling him, go to Germany. Go find a team in the Bundesliga, Hertha Berlin, somewhere like that. Go learn a different way of thinking under the sp- uh, away from the spotlight of Premier League and just learn your craft. If he's serious about becoming a manager at the top level, and to be honest, he really doesn't need to. Like, there's plenty of other things he could do. He's Steven Gerrard. But if he does, <laughs> then that would be my advice. Yeah, I, th- I think um, it, in a way as well, it might have just done us a favour, really, in, in a bit of a ruthless sort of way. Um, you know, we we saw how, how Lampard did at Chelsea, yeah. uh, Solskjaer at United, and sometimes it's just not worth it. Um, and I think you have to be ridiculously skilled to to be that good of a player and that good of a coach as well. Obviously, we see it with Guardiola. We see it with potentially with Zidane. You know, Zidane didn't tarnish his legacy at all at Real Madrid. Yeah. But ultimately, if he's if he's not world class, he shouldn't be anywhere near Liverpool, regardless of who he is. Essentially, you know, that's the cutthroat of it, yeah. and he's not. Yes, at least. And Mo has a point there in terms of going and learning this trade. You know, I've, I've got no issues with that. But in terms of him being at Liverpool anytime soon, certainly, you know, when it comes to replacing Klopp, for example, no, no chance. No chance. I think his next job, if it's in this country, I think his next job will potentially be in the Championship, personally. But I don't know. We'll see. Well, Mo, I mean, if it's in this country, I think his next job will be with England, either under 23 yeah, or potentially, the national yeah. team. Yeah, it's a good shield. Next up. Right, so my next question, uh, the first one on our list from Mick Burdus. Uh, have you spotted any players in the World Cup gracing Liverpool other than Jude Bellingham? Well, yes, I have. Um, <laughs> it's funny, actually, because we went through our uh, midfielders chat over two shows and a couple of the guys who we mentioned in that have kind of been in action and they have certainly piqued my interest but someone we kind of mentioned in dispatches but didn't quite come in is someone who caught my eyes Lovro Meyer who plays for Croatia is a midfielder and he's only been he's not been starting games he's been basically coming on when the main midfield has gone off and um looked a little bit tired and weary but I mean Croatia took off Luka Modric with like 20 minutes to go in normal time against Japan safe in the knowledge that they would be able to do everything they needed to do because Lovro Meyer was there. Like, the way Croatia have been able to kind of get new midfielders coming through, learning from the older guard, because they did the same thing with Kovacic, is remarkable. But this guy, he's got all the skills, all the technical ability. And obviously, we haven't necessarily played with a traditional number 10, which is what I'd say is his primary position. He's adapted his game. He can play as an advanced eight. He has the ability to have some defensive responsibility as well. He's not what you call a luxury player, but he's just so great on the ball and he's really good to watch. And he's a creator. And considering the forward line we've got, the more creators we can get into midfield, the better. So I think he's someone to keep an eye on for sure. Yeah, I also think the the impact of, of Enzo Fernandez on, on Argentina has been pretty clear. You know, we have touched on him lately in terms of the recruitment shows that we've done. So I won't I won't stay on him too long, but I think he's had an obvious impact for Argentina since starting the initial starting the tournament initially on the bench, I think. And since he's came on, he's just made a bit of a difference. So he's an obvious player. And I think another one who I'm not gonna touch on because we have more questions on him, but is is Sofian Amrabat, I think from for Morojo has performed very well. Yeah. But I'll leave that one there because we have questions on them. Um, so I've got a question from Luke Young, and you can answer this one as well, Mo. He says, who's your all-time top five Premier League centre-backs? So for me, I'll go in order, actually. Uh, number one, Virgil van Dijk. And I've got no issues with saying that. No bias at all. I think he's his, his best level from like signing for Liverpool up until the start of this season. That level I have never seen it for from a centre back. Um literally like me playing as a centre back against the gang of ten year olds. <laughs> that that's what it's like because he's faster than them all, stronger mm-hmm. than them all, can make them do exactly what he wants. 
and it's just far too easy. And I've, ne- I've never seen anything like it. So Virgil van Dijk, for me, has showcased the highest peak out of every centre-back I've ever seen in the Premier League. Um, and I'm, I, by the way, I'm only going to name players that I've seen. Yet. Yeah. So um, Tony Adams, for example, is excluded for me. Uh, so second, I'm going to go John Terry. Um, really underrated on the ball. Two-footed. You know, them cross-field diagonals that we know Virgil does very well. John Terry was doing them a while back. Um, available every week. Scored a load of goals. And um, absolutely committed to the cause. You know, he was very very much a dog, just putting his head wherever it needs to be and, you know, that sort of thing. Um, third, I'll go, I think, Vincent Company Could be third for me. Um, fourth... Well, I'm going to let you go while I'm thinking, mate. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, disappointingly, um, for people who like a bit of variety, all three of those you mentioned were also in my top five. They're not the top three, but they're also in there. In um, fact, I, I, let me just finish mine very quickly. Num- number four for me would be Rio Ferdinand. And I think number five, probably Sol Campbell, I'd go with. Go on. Okay, so four of you, the ones that you've got, are the ones who I've got because Sol Campbell's my number two. I think he is okay. entirely underrated. I think yeah, very. he was the back he was not only was he the backbone of that invincible side, he basically dragged Spurs to relevance on his own before he left. Um came he came through as a midfielder. He played as a right back for England. He's just so versatile and just obviously massive. Like, really solid, but <laughs> a great reader of the game. Like, when you think back in the centre-halves they had back then, they were all grocks. Like, there was ones who were talented, but they were grocks as well. So you had to be able to handle yourself, and he could. <clears throat> so, yeah, I'd have Sol Campbell, number two. Uh, Virgil van Dijk is still number one for the reasons you mentioned. I, if I wanted to assess it to make sure it wasn't recency bias, but no, no one put together a run the way that he did. No one's, like you say, no one's touched that level. Yeah. Um, I would have Terry just ahead of um company again. I agree with you. I think as of actual footballer, Terry is very underrated. I think that was one of the good things about him. And yes, I hated him, hated him, hated him. <laughs> but you have to respect him. The the, the two thousand five season when they first won the league, I think he scored something like twelve goals. And they weren't all just headers from corners. They were Sometimes late goals, sometimes quite it's good. John Terry, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And to think that he had that in his locker as well, just when his team needed it to be able to come up with a magic moment, that, that ways. My fifth one is a bit of a renegade. And I'm taking advantage of the fact that I am older than you and I've seen more than you. Uh, I'm going to go with Des Walker. And the reason I'm going with Des Walker is because he was tiny when you think about the way centre-backs are. There's been a lot of talk about <clears throat> Lisandro Martinez and his height and being able to manage Des Walker, I believe, was like 5'9, five, 5'10. Five, he was not a tall man. He was lightning quick. And there's a reason they used to sing you'll never beat Des Walker. Because no one did. Like he handled himself in a way that no man that size should be expected to. As I mentioned, in amongst all those grocks. And for Sheffield Wednesday, for Nottingham Forest, he was just remarkable. So, shout out Des Walker. Analyzing Anfield on the Blood Red Channel. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You know what? When you said that, then there was a player of a thought you were going to say, but you didn't, because um, I've never seen him. And whenever I watch like ex-footballers, like I don't know, someone like Paul Mason or something, talking about players we played with, they all mention his name, and I've, I've, I don't know very much about him at all. I've never watched him play, and it's it's Paul McGrath. I knew you were going to say yeah. Yeah, he I was... hear his name all the time, making people talk like literally like about about him the way they talk about Virgil now. But I've I've yeah. never seen the guy play. He, 
when his his best days were before my real I was watching football but I wasn't really paying attention, you know? Yeah. Like and also it just wasn't on as often. Like when he was at United, for example, that was when he was at his peak. But he's someone who I think people talk about him because it's almost like a bit of what if there were lots of things that kind of held him back in his life and his career. Mm. The injuries, but also him, him in himself, like alcohol, for example. And that stopped him getting to be as well-known and world-renowned as a Virgil would be. So I think that's probably why he gets referenced a lot. But yeah, he, he was good. Like, I mean, playing for Ireland in the World Cup, basically on one knee, um, he was superb. So yeah, go and check out some of those performances. Like, yeah, Ireland against USA, the famous victory. He's amazing in that game. So if you want to know more about Paul McGrath, go watch some highlights of that game. Yeah. I think you're on next, mate. I am indeed. Okay. Raul McKenzie wants to know, do I think Curtis Jones will have an important part to play for Liverpool when we return to action? And do you think he's likely to be sold next summer with the arrival of Carvalho and Elliot's positive return from injury? Well, that's an interesting question because on the one hand, you can look at it and say, well, Curtis Jones just signed a new contract, a new long-term deal, during which time Jurgen Klopp spoke eloquently about his development and how important he sees him to the side. And yet, we know that there's going to be a lot of upheaval in midfield. What we don't know is whether we're going to need to recoup any money from sales. (laughs) And if we do... In comparison to previous years, there aren't quite as many saleable assets in within the squad. So it might be a bigger make or break year for Curtis than we'd originally anticipated. I don't know what's going to happen in January. I do believe that some midfield reinforcements are going to come in at some point. So he might have to fight with them. But Curtis's biggest task is to make sure he's fit and available for every game from now to the end of the season. Because he hasn't been able to. And I think that that's been the number one problem for him. He's in and out, been asked to do different jobs here and there, bits and pieces. He hasn't had a chance to nail down a role properly. And there's been roles that look like they've been made for him. For a while, it looked like he was being moulded to take on the Thiago role. But since then, we've seen him appear back as a wide forward a few times because that's where the need is, because we haven't had any of uh, Diaz or Jota. So he's still kind of basically, and I think if he's going to have a long-term future, you need to be able to see him alongside. For example, you need to be able to see him alongside Jude Bellingham and uh, Jordan Henderson, just for example, and think, okay, how would that midfield work? Where would he fit in? What would his role be? And then you take him um, Henderson out, put Harvey Elliott in there, or... And you can you can basically do that with all the different permutations we have to say, okay, what would his role be in this midfield? How would he operate here? And if there isn't a lot of consistency, then that might be an issue. I don't know. I'm hopeful that he's got the ability, if given the opportunity, to rise to the challenge. I just don't know whether it's going to play out that way. Yeah, he's an insistent one, Curtis Jones, actually. We, we get asked about him fairly often on this podcast, and every time... We seem to stick up for him, really, and provide a bit of context in a positive light when it comes to it. Um, I will, I will admit that in the past like six months or so, I've found myself feeling a bit frustrated by his development or or lack of maybe, and the lack of game time he's he's getting and the lack of game time he's available for crucially. Um, but every every time it, it, I come back to it like this now. It feels like he's been on the scene for ages. He's still 21. He's 21 years old. And he's a central midfielder who's local. He stands over six foot. And if you look at his, his skill set, he, he is an interesting player. You know, his numbers are, are good in certain departments. He, especially his dribbling, you know, for a central midfielder. Compared to other central midfielders from across Europe, he's in the 99th percentile for completed dribbles on a pair 90 basis. Um good at receiving the ball in like uh, tight spaces and that and he's, he's quite quite press resistant I think sometimes really technical and obviously very attack minded he's in the 98th percentile of midfielders for shots um, shoots about 
2.4 times per 90, which is just more than the typical centre mid. Um, but that's the big thing for me is, is his age. You, you do have to remember that he's, he's still just 21. And um, I think if he was developing like this abroad, I don't think Liverpool would sign him. But I think Liverpool would would be monitoring and would be would be tracking what he's doing and things like that. So, although it's it can be frustrating, I think he's just one that we've just got to be really patient with and 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 give another few years to. And yeah. the, the only thing is with that, what Mo was just said in terms of the whole sell to buy policy. Obviously, we ended up cashing in on the likes of Ryan Brewster and Keanu Hoover. So Jones has that threat above his head a little bit, I suppose. But I still don't think I still think he's got at least two more seasons in red before he actually becomes attainable on the market for another club. Because then Liverpool will know a lot more about where he's going and mm-hmm. and how he's getting on and stuff. But right now, he's still at that age where he, he could become anything. Like for example, just off the top of my head, Cody Gapo is now very much in the spotlight and he seems to be exploding and all that stuff. He's twenty three. You know, yeah. he's 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 only doing it now. And he's 23. So two years ago, very few people were talking about him. I'm not saying Jones is going to follow a similar trajectory, but at it's 21, yeah, at 21, you still don't know what what you're getting there. You still don't know what you're going to end up with. And if you look at Jones's skill set, you know, he, as I said before, he's technical, good at dribbling, mobile. You know, he's he, he's quite well rounded when you look at it. Um, he just needs to refine his game. I think he's a rough, very rough diamond. I think it's probably a good way of putting it. Mm-hmm. Um. So yeah, it's he's an interesting one, Kiz Jones, but he wants to just keep track of. I'm sure we'll get asked more questions about him in the future. Um, so I've got a question from Chris. He doesn't put a surname in, um, and it's it's on Sofian Amrabat, as I said before. So plays for Morocco in the World Cup, and he says he's been linked with Liverpool in recent days. Will he be a good fit if we were to sign him? So. I've watched some of his World Cup games, mm-hmm. and I'll be honest, he, he, he has impressed me. He's looked really good. He's looked like the the heart of Monaco, uh, Monaco of Morocco's um, really dogged shape, uh, bang in the middle, breaking up any, any, any balls that come anywhere near him. Um, and he looks really committed to the cause. Industrious looks like he's got a good mentality about him. I think he might he might be vice captain. I think I might I don't know if I'm right in saying that. Roman Sykes is the captain. Yeah. I think he might be vice captain. Um but although he looks okay and and he, he does look applicable and things like that in, in some ways, I'm not that sure. Simply because he is 26. Mm-hmm. Um and despite being 26, you know, he's he's he, had a, a career at Fiorentina, Hellas Verona, Club Bruges, Feyenoord, Utrecht. Um, without wanting to sound really simplistic about it, I think there's a reason why he's still at those kind of clubs. Um, I think he's a good player, but for me, there's a big, there's a red flag there when it comes to um, signing the player on the back of a good World Cup. Well, it feels like, it feels like that. That that is always. Uh... A worry. I think with him, you, there are some mitigating circumstances. I know his uh, older brother, Nordine Amrabat, played for Watford. And when he was 21, there was a lot of talk of Watford buying him as well. Uh, in the end, Feyenoord outbid them, which is why he ended up there. Had he come to the Premier League at 21, there's no question. Well, we don't yeah. know what would have happened. He might then have ended up higher up the chain. So you can look at it from that. The interesting thing about him for me is that when you look at how he played for Morocco, you think that that's just his role, the destroyer. That's not his role for Fiorentina. When he's yeah. playing for Fiorentina, he is the passer. He is the guy who facilitates, rotates possession. But he's also a really good dribbler. I mean, we've seen some of it, the way he's been able to, once he's won the ball for Morocco, dribble out of tight spaces and, and, and pass it up further upfield. But that is basically what he does for Fiorentina regularly. So... If you look at his tackles and interception numbers, they're way down on what you'd expect. But then Fiorentina have always got either Alfred Duncan next to him or Rolando Mandragora next to him, who are the destroyer. So it speaks to his um, versatility. I do wonder whether, regarding the age, 
this is one of those where if it wasn't an ap- applicable deal, i.e. someone who can come in immediately, someone who won't cost the world when obviously we've got large chunks of money potentially um, being used elsewhere. I think it might be one that's suitable. I think back to the Shakiri deal where it was almost like there's a low risk, potentially high reward. This could be another situation. And also the fact that Spurs went in for him. And then if we go and steal them from Spurs, just like we did with Lewis Diaz, uh, that's just an extra thing for me. I'd actually quite enjoy that. <laughs> yeah. You touched on there that how he's, he, he, he's, he does a lot more on the ball for Fiorentina. I, th- I was going to say then, his, his, his progressive passes numbers are really interesting. Um, they're a lot higher than you'd expect. He, he, he averages more progressive passes on a penalty basis than, than Jordan Henderson, Fabinho, um, and ranks in the 97th percentile of midfielders across Europe's top five leagues for that. So, again, he's, he's as Mo said, he's, he's not just a destroyer and he can play. Um, it just feels a bit more of... I don't know. I, I, I just if we did get him in, it'd be a stopgap thing. I think it'd be like a, a means of adding an extra body, fresh legs, and probably in January. I'd be amazed if we got him in the summer. I think he'd be yeah. a January move, wouldn't he? To to kind of shore Liverpool up for a a bit of a short term and constantly for a few years and stuff. But I don't know. I but one one thing I will say is there's no way Liverpool will be judging them based on the World Cup. They'll, they'll be no. judging them based on you know his, his whole career and that, and you know going into full detail. Um, Mo, I think you're next. Analyzing Anfield on the Blood Red Channel. I am indeed next. Um, so this question has been asked by uh, Ryan O'Quigley, and he said, "I asked this about three years ago, but he only seems to have gotten better as the years go on." <laughs> and he's right. Uh, just how valuable is Allison to Liverpool compared to other top keepers like Neuer and Edison? It's a good question, really, because. When you quantify it, I believe there are numbers you can look at and say that he's actually worth this many points. And I think for, for Liverpool and for Allison, it's more than just about the points. It's more than just about the saves. It's the security. And when we've had goalkeepers in the past who haven't been able to offer that security, it's not just about what they do as themselves, but it's what they do to everyone else around them and how quickly uh, good confidence and good play can dissipate off the back of one bad mistake from a goalkeeper. So having someone who pretty much eliminates that and the calm manner that he does it, I think having the way that we want to play, having a goalkeeper who can do nothing for a long time and then still be excellent, is fantastic. And then you have to think about him in attacking points. Like, he has put up attacking numbers that no other goalkeeper has ever done. He's had a goal and assist a season for the last things he's been at Liverpool. One a season. Like, you you get one a career if you're lucky. Goalkeepers died out on that stuff. He does it on the reg. And he does it so often that teams have to game plan against it. Like, when they've got a corner, they have to make sure that none of our players are leaking out because they know if he comes and claims it, he can find them like on a sixpence within seconds. And that bit can't be underestimated either. But the goalkeeper is such an important part of every single team. We've seen it so far this World Cup. We see it time and time again across football. Having that position settled is allows you to do so much. And he is that for us. I think when you compare it to someone like Edison at Manchester City, Edison is someone who helps them, their system very well in terms of what he's able to do in terms of his long passing. But you are weighing it against some other things. I do think there's a reason why Alisson's playing for Brazil, not Edison. I do think as a goalkeeper in terms of stopping the ball going into the goal, I think Alisson's better at it than Edison. I don't think Edison gets tested enough to really see it when you consider the amount of shots the Man City don't give up compared to what Liverpool do. So you don't really see it as often. But yeah, I think that that's the main difference. I think he's elite in both ends. Yeah, I, I think Alisson is... He's arguably Liverpool's most valuable player in terms of points. Strictly in terms of points. He is so valuable that it's it's ridiculous. And he's not even close to Edison. Um, 
just in terms of numbers, which we do touch on every now and then when it comes to Alisson. Right, for a bit of perspective, since 2017, in league competitions and the Champions League, uh, Alisson has saved 36.2 goals more than expected. So, what the best way I can put that is, all of those shots that Alisson has faced in that time, if they were faced by an average goalkeeper, the, the difference between Alisson and the average goalkeeper is about 36 goals in, in that period, which is incredible. And um, and for perspective, Edison, in the same competitions over the same period, has saved 2.2 goals more than expected compared to Alisson's 36.2. So <laughs> the difference is massive. Edison's not even on in the same on the same plant as Allison when it comes to shot stopping. Distribution, I think he's probably better um, than Allison. I think his distribution is, is is brilliant. It's the best I've ever seen, I think, actually, from a goalkeeper. But in terms of being a goalkeeper, shot stopping, it's not even close. And another keeper who Liverpool fans will know well because of the, the back end of last season, Thibaut Courtois. Yeah. He's just a random keeper. I've just got up because I think he's very, very good. Again, over the same period, in the same competitions, Courtois has overperformed by 22.7 goals. Again, Alisson, 36. It's it's unrivaled. He's not, nobody is close to him, honestly. No. I, I'll get up and while I'm speaking now, just for evidence <laughs> of this. But... Mate, I, he, I, I wrote... So I, I wrote something about him a couple of weeks ago. I just found what I was looking for. It's, there's a guy called John Harrison who's devised a goalkeeper XG statistical model, yeah. which is specifically looking at all the different areas around goalkeepers, from shot stopping to shot preventing to distributing, and worked out uh, an expected goals model. And he had Allison uh, as player of the year for 21-22. Liverpool were 19 goals better off in one season because he was there and no one else got more than I think seven. <laughs> so yeah. yeah, he was twice as good as anybody else. Yeah. Well, I've, I've just gotten Neuer up now and again, same competition, same period. Neuer has overperformed by 17.1 goals. Alisson about just more than double that. Obviously Neuer is into his thirties at that point. One keeper who, who does get close off the top of my head now, I'm just getting the numbers up now as absolute proof, is, is Jan Oblak, I think. Hang on a sec. Mm-hmm. So Oblak's numbers over the same period, he yeah, Oblak has overperformed by 42.7 goals. So you could argue that's the only goalkeeper there in the world, in my opinion, who can even get close to Alisson's shot stopping, really, mm-hmm. is Jan Oblak. And I think you've got to factor in Jan Olak's facing totally different scenarios to Alisson. Alisson faces a lot, a lot less shots. Yeah. A lot less shots. Um, and you've got to factor in Alisson's distribution, in my opinion, is far better than Olak's. So I think Alisson's the best keeper in the world comfortably. I don't think it's even close in terms of him no. being like a well-rounded package and stuff. So, And and then obviously you factor that in as to what he's worth in terms of points. It's absolutely no surprise for me that Liverpool paid such such a expensive price tags to get him because he's worth every penny yeah. Um, yeah I've got a question from Lee Connor he basically just says Declan Rice or Jude Bellingham um, who would you go for if you had to pick one They're both young English Rice probably cheaper and he says he'd pick Bellingham and I'd I'd agree with him uh, I think Liverpool probably if, you, if you're looking for a strict profile Liverpool probably need more of a rice, to be honest, as in a player who will, will lean towards the defensive side of the game more than anything else. But Bellingham's just so good at everything that he's making a massive difference to your defence while also doing tons of other stuff. So I think Rice is very good at what he does, and I would take him. But Bellingham is... Um, I think I'd go as far as saying he's probably generational for me. Mm-hmm. No, I agree. And I think that... Considering him and how long we've been talking to him, we have a clear plan for him. And that's the exciting part because 
he is a player who can do so much and be in so many positions that we don't necessarily know which ones he's going to fulfil for Liverpool. But obviously Declan Rice has that, well, he has versatility as well, maybe not quite to the level of Bellingham, but it would be more of a specific role with Declan Rice. With Bellingham, he could do anything and everything. I think it very much would be a case of, <clears throat> it would be difficult to get both. Um, I don't think it's an either or in as much as I can't, I don't think you could ask Declan Rice to do all the things that Bellingham would do. So if you didn't get Bellingham, I think you'd still need to buy someone else to do some of that. But yeah, if Liverpool ended up missing out on Bellingham, buying a player who does that role and then targeting Declan Rice, I'd be happy with that too. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Okay, so my next one. Uh, there's a couple of questions here about the US team. So I'm going to go with what the top one here from Keenan. He said, when the US men's coach Greg Berhalter was hired, he proclaimed his goal was to change the way the world views American soccer. <laughs> Large claim. There are wildly <laughs> different opinions among US fans on whether or not he's accomplished that. So you'd like to hear our opinion on the team's performance. Were you impressed and do you feel we're on the up? Well, yes and no. I, I, I do feel like you're a team on the up. I feel like there are lots of players in that team who are only going to get better and have the benefit of having played together through youth groups for a long time. That will help. I do wonder whether Berhalter is the man to take them forward. I just think in terms of the way that he wanted to play, if the way that he wanted to play was that, they very much needed not only speed in the forward line, in the centre-forward position, but they needed technical ability, they needed finishing ability, they needed a good striker's instinct. They didn't have that from the guys they picked. I Jordan Peefock, who's been absolutely tearing out for Union Berlin, it would have been in my squad, it would have been in my starting lineup. And I think that's the problem for Berhalter. There is a configuration of players within that squad, within the talent pool that the US have, to put together a much better display than what they did. They'll be disappointed that they weren't able to beat Wales. That was really what set them back. If they'd have been able to close out that game, the draw with England would have been seen as much more of a victory rather than a missed opportunity. And yes, they were able to get over the line against Iran. But again, I think in all three games, you saw them having problems with not finishing the chances that they were able to create. So get a different man with maybe a slightly different philosophy. You've got the talent pool there. But in terms of how respected American football, I'm still not going to call it soccer, damn it, is across <laughs> the world, I do think that has increased. I do think people are now looking at Americans as a serious football outfit. Analyzing Anfield on the Blood Red Channel. Yeah, so I've got a question from, from Larkin. And he asks, I suppose it's a little bit World Cup themed. He asks, do you, how do you assess the gap between club football and international football? Imagine France or Brazil versus Manchester City. And someone also asked, let me see who it was. Um, it was Wayne Martin or Martin Wayne. <laughs> Wayne Martin, I think. Um, he asked, would Liverpool win the World Cup? Essentially, you know, if Liverpool entered as a country, which I suppose we could, <laughs> um, <clears throat> where would we finish? And uh, I think it's interesting, actually. I, th I think Liverpool and Manchester City would both win the World Cup um, <clears throat> if they went into it. Maybe Liverpool are a little bit dodgy this season, of course, but if we're beating it on Liverpool last season, for example, uh, I think Liverpool would win the World Cup. And the reason behind that is just the, the level of coaching that you get to benefit from. At club level, you know, it's it's every week. You get to work on really fine details. You get to absolutely refine exactly what you're doing and your and your idea and things like that. Um, and I've always felt international football, although it's nice to see, like for me, the the, the team on in the in the World Cup this time around, and most times actually, who played most like a club was was Spain, and I enjoyed watching Spain. And I'd always give them a tip towards winning it. But because the bottom line is they're not a club and they don't know each other that well, 
they always end up getting picked off by the the teams who are a bit more strategic match to match in terms of just being tactically flexible, like a Benitez or a Mourinho back in the day. So it's weird because club fo- club footballs come come a long way in terms of everybody, specifically in England, moving towards like you should have a philosophy, you should have a fixed mm. tactical idea. Whereas international football, for me, and this is why I think Gareth Southgate is is quite a good international coach. Whether he'd be a great club coach, I'm not sure. But in terms of international stuff, it's because he's he he's willing to strategically adjust from match to match depending on what he's coming up against. And England can dominate, England can counter-attack and, and all that. And it, it, it benefits the team. It, it, it works at international level. It works in these knockout tournaments. Whereas Spain, despite the domination that they showcased in most of their games, apart from one 7-0 win, they didn't pick up another win. They, I think no. they, drew, they drew another two or three and lost one. Um, so I think the differences are massive. And I think generally when it comes to international level, you're a lot more reliant on individual stardust, um, de- defensive, collective organisation, and, and everything, that, everything that happens in the attack is just more um, individuals just doing their thing, really. Um, yeah, I'm not sure if you have any thoughts on that one. I mean, the, in terms of the difference, <clears throat> I think it's not just about the amount of time you get to plan and to implement what you can do, but it's what you can do to change it. So, for example, if you've got a player at Manchester City who's not performing, you sell him. And you can have your pick of any other player in the world to bring in. With a country, it's not always that simple. You have the players who you have, and you have to work from within them. You've got a narrow talent pool for starters. But then, in terms of what it takes to win those competitions, I'd say kind of internationals are a bit more like the Champions League, particularly when you get to the knockout rounds. So you can be looking good for all of the competition, but one bad game can kill it all. Like, obviously, the way Liverpool and Man City have been battling in the Premier League recently, that's kind of been the case as well. But over history, you normally are able to wear poor form over the course of a season if you are still the best team and be able to come out on top. Whereas in international football, it's a lot more all or nothing. But then... It's a lot rarer in those tournaments that you would get uh, meaningless games. So you get occasionally get a dead rubber at the end of the group, but you're not going to have a, um, an away game against um, West Brom on a, on a Wednesday afternoon when you know that you're already seven points behind or seven points ahead. So it's not quite the same in terms of the heightened sense of urgency and there are some international managers who thrive on that, who are able to channel that. And that's why they're able to be so good. In terms of the actual teams themselves, I agree with you. I think the best club level could match quite easily and probably beat the best international level. I think uh, you're next up, mate. I am indeed. Right. Okay. <laughs> right. Well, let's answer the question that everyone's been asking and... <laughs> I mean, we kind of answered it last week. Actually, no, we did a whole show on that last week. So let's let's not go back over the ownership. We've we, we've done that quite a lot. So let's not bother. Yeah. Um. Okay. So. Okay. So that's another question about that. <laughs> okay. Well, there's three or four questions <laughs> that are all about it. So maybe we should touch on it a little bit. Okay. So Katie Cop says, "Do you think FSG are likely to sell the club as a whole?" I do not see a part owner being willing to just invest in players. Is a joint ownership really workable? So this is kind of like a branch of the main question that we answer. So I guess we can dive into it. It's something that I covered on the Anfield Wrap yesterday. We had a gutter show where we were discussing this exact thing. And I think the point with minority ownership and the idea of what are they getting out of it, a lot of it depends upon what they want. So you get a lot of minority investors in sports who maybe want to get into the world but don't know a lot about the world. So they don't want to try and buy a whole club outright in case it goes wrong. They want to be involved in a minor level, get some money from it, work out how it works, see the running of the what the sport entails, and then maybe take a leap to look for more investment in that club or sell up there and try and buy another club. That's something that you see happen a lot. I think LeBron James's interest in Liverpool is kind of a, an indicator towards that 
when his career is over, he wants to be an owner of a sports team. And whether it's football or whether it's NFL or something like that, he's getting into the world of sports ownership through that manner. In terms of what else they could get out of it, obviously you have to understand as well that if this is something that Liverpool FSG are looking to do on a short-term basis, i.e. they're saying that we need an immediate cash injection to be able to fulfil our objectives this season, i.e. qualify for the Champions League, win some trophies maybe. And then from that position of more strength, then look to do a sale. Obviously, anyone who comes in at a minority owner at that point, they might, they stand to make potentially quite a large profit compared to what they're putting in now as a minority owner and what they may get out for that stake once the, the large sale happens. So you can look at it in many different ways. It's not just a case of someone saying, I'm going to give you all this money and you decide who we buy and I don't care and maybe I want to decide who we buy. <clears throat> the fact remains is that FSG have been in the sports ownership business for a long time. They have connections, particularly throughout America, but in other places as well. So they know the kind of people that they're looking for. And so this process is going to take as long as it takes until they find those people, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. I, um, I was going to get involved with that myself, but we, we might as well move on, mate, because we've still got loads and loads of questions. And as, as usual, we're not going to get through them all. Um. So I'm going to go to one from Alex Absalom. He asks, uh, with Liverpool using a greater variety of formations this season, please could you outline the strengths and weaknesses of the main ones favoured by Klopp, uh, especially bearing in mind the players that we have? Yeah, so um, lots to touch on there, I think, really. I mean, we've used 4-3-3, obviously, 4-4-2 and... A four-four-two diamond is probably the, the, the three that, I, that you're referring to there. In terms of the four-three-three, I think we all know the, the the way that works, the perks of that system. Um, it accommodates inside forwards who are kind of closer to goal, uh, likely to cut inside on their favoured foot and get involved in the penalty box. Basically, um, there's no number ten in that system, but it hasn't mattered over the years because Firmino naturally likes to occupy those spaces mm-hmm. um which is a bit more of an issue if you have darwin nunez in his place in my opinion because darwin nunez is less inclined to drop into those 10 spaces and he's just less good at it as well in my opinion um and obviously with firmino now 31 and nunez being the next big thing the next guy maybe that's a bit of an issue uh, you've also only got one holding midfielder in that system so he either has to be heavily protected or he has to be very mobile and, and capable of covering wide open spaces um, to perform effectively. And you've got midfield, you've got like two box-to-box number eights in that system who are good at covering the full-backs. Um, if you look in comparison to four four two, the wide players are further away from goal. They are a bit wider. Uh, there's a midfield two rather than a, a single person and that, that midfield two is inclined to move kind of like side to side and form a box sometimes with the two centre-backs rather than, you know, industrious running up and down the pitch all day. You've also got probably less less cover for the full-backs because there's only a midfield two rather than the three. And the four-four-two that Klopp did use for a period, one of the main perks of it was when Liverpool engaged in a high press, Trent could stay back. Trent was no longer expected to form part of the high press because in a four four two he's already got six players ahead of him in, in the midfield four and the front two. So Trent can stay as a normal right back and, and that benefited him for a period, I thought. And then in terms of a diamond, it's it's very centrally packed. Um you have a number ten, you have a front two, it's very narrow. Because it's very narrow you are a bit more reliant on your fullbacks to basically be you basically need I think Robertson's quite suited to it, but you need another Robertson on the other side, I think. I think Trent is a bit more he's a bit less of a Jorasel bunny basically. And a bit more cultured Trent. I think he can do it. He can do it fine. You know, he's still only twenty four and stuff, but you, you put a lot of emphasis on your fullbacks to get up and down the wings all day there. Um and sometimes it can be a bit of a dodgy system when it comes to breaking down a block because it is so narrow 
Um, but it's I, I think all the changes for the most part have been have been made because of the players that clubs had at his disposal. Certainly the diamond, you know, we started playing with the diamond because Diaz and Jota both got injured. Yeah. So uh, and we replaced Mane with Nunes, who's a central player. So it looked for the period like we had Firmino, Salah, and um, Nunes as our attacking options. Firmino was a central guy. Salah was looking more and more like a central guy, and he was hating the wings by the looks of it. And Nunes is a central striker for me. So that was why Klopp went towards a diamond. But when we get back to it anyway, after the break, I think it'll be 4 3 3 again, really. So a bit of a long winded answer, but um, <laughs> it's difficult to cover tactics concisely, really, isn't it? It is. I think the key part of what you said that relates back to the guy's question is the strengths and weaknesses rely on the personnel we have available. Yeah. I think, like you said, there are, particularly when you're trying to implement someone new like Nunes, but also Fabio Carvalho as well, I think of. When you're playing. The, to their strengths within the system, it's easier. But does that system then hurt the strengths of other players within the team? So there's a very much a case of while while everyone's not up to speed, it's a little bit of a risk of reward thing again, as in can you wear it being a little bit harder on a Trent or a Fabinho in order to make it easier on Nunes to the point where he can affect the game in the way that he wants to? And then once he's feeling more comfortable and up to speed, and like you say, once we've got the likes of Giaz and Jota back, then you can revert to a little bit more that's comfortable for everybody. Yeah, I think the the bottom line is that the tactic is is for the players. You know, whatever tactic you're enforcing, it's got to be for your players. And ideally, it's supposed to provide the players with a framework, a collective framework, and it should highlight the strengths of your best players and ideally mask the weaknesses of your worst mm-hmm. players, essentially. Um, so if you think of who your best players are, if you look at it now, it's it's probably you want to get the best out of Salah, obviously. You want to get the best out of Nunes, Trent, Van Dijk. And that's that you kind of want to present them with a platform to thrive, really. And I think the Nunes question is a big one for me because... As I said, he's very, very different to, to Firmino. He's not inclined to drop into those 10 spaces. And because he's more of a penalty box player, in my opinion, I think it makes sense to play a number 10 with him. And that would probably be a 4-2-3-1. Um, but that would involve Salah maybe a tiny bit wider than usual. People don't like that. So it's... It, I mean, and, and it, it's it, could be, it could be Salah as the 10. It could be, yeah. It could be, yeah. Like a bit of an um, old school, like a, a luxury performer yeah. as, he, as he gets on with age, just kind of like walking like Messi does. Yeah, I mean, I'd be bang up for that, to be honest. Buy another right winger, have Messi, um, sorry, Salah, I almost called him Messi there, <laughs> as a number 10 and Nunes ahead of him. I think he kind of did that with uh, Totti at Roma. And obviously the beauty of that at Roma is that they were both able to interchange. But I think he enjoys it. Like we've seen when he comes into the middle this season, whether he's playing up top or whether he is dropping a little bit deeper. I think he enjoys being in those spaces. I think he enjoys giving defenders a new problem because whether or not we will acknowledge it, he sees the same thing from every team, every game. Two guys, every time he gets the ball out wide, two guys between him and the nearest red shirt. So him coming in and more centrally is giving them more problems and making them have to make different sacrifices which might open up other spaces for other people so I think that's a very live possibility Yeah, I will say as well that it'd be interesting to see if, if Liverpool get you Bellingham obviously because Be- Bellingham for me is very very much a number 8 he was, he's as much of a number 8 as you can possibly get I think um, probably on the left side and he, he's played there in a few games for England Really good at making those timed runs into the penalty box and adding like an extra body, and like arriving late, almost like Lampard used to and Stephen Gerrard at times. Deli Ali, he's had that to his game lately. Dortmund's top scorer this season in all competitions by about three goals, I think it is as well. Um, so he's obviously going to be a player that you want to get the most out of as well. So it's going to be interesting to see what Liverpool do, but I think particularly Nunes 
Nunes and Carvalho were really interesting signs because Carvalho, we don't play this number 10, prosper as a number 10 for Fulham. We, we Liverpool haven't occup, operated with a 10 for years, really. Like a proper one, at least, anyway. Um, and Nunes was very different to Firmino. So I know, I know he's, he's, he's done okay lately on the flanks. But once Diaz comes back, Nunes is coming back in the middle. So I don't know. It's, it's interesting to see how things work out. But I think we'll, uh, we'll round up there anyway, Mo. Because we've been yeah, going for an hour here. <laughs> <laughs> Time flies. Yeah, I've, I, I was going to read out some of the names of people who whose questions are still left, but I'll just hang on to them in case we we do another one next week. If it's if it's another quiet week, then we might have to go down that route. Maybe even we can talk about England if they get through and, and beat France. You know, maybe depends on yeah. the, the appetite for that on this show. <laughs> well, if there's another goal from Jordan Henderson, I think the appetite <laughs> might grow. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, a bromance growing there, I think, between yeah. Henderson and Bellingham. Um, but yeah, we'll leave it there anyway. So that was the Q&A. Whether there's another one next week, potentially, if you want to throw in a question, you can. Um, but Mo, thanks for joining us, mate. No worries. It's been fun, as always. Yeah, and we'll see you next week. You've been listening to the Analyzing Anfield podcast on the Blood Red channel.